Glory to Jesus Christ and glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number six on the remembrance of death. And we're on page 109 with paragraph 17 at the very bottom of the page. And uh, if you remember, as we were talking about this, that John considers the remembrance of death a kind of essential aspect of the spiritual life, an essential virtue to foster, that the acknowledgement of our own mortality brings a kind of clarity uh, to our vision of our life and, uh, and brings clarity to the moment, to the moment itself. That if we understand that our time in this world is brief, but that we also have to give an account for our life, that it heightens our, uh, the sensitivity of our conscience and attentiveness to how we are responding to God and his grace in the moment. And so above all the, the writers the, of, the, of the fathers, uh, John develops this point the most. And so whenever anybody speaks of this, they always point to, point to John Climacus. So we're for, fortunate to be able to read it in depth. So again, paragraph 17. Another who lived here in the place called Thola often went into ecstasy at the thought of death. And the brothers who found him would lift him and carry him off scarcely breathing like one who had fainted or had an epileptic fit. So it's interesting that one would actually go into a kind of ecstasy, uh, engaging in prayer while uh, also holding in mind this remembrance of death, that uh, it, there's also something about it that purifies the heart and uh, deepens one's prayer. And so it's placed on an equal footing, I would say, with uh, vigils and fasting and the other disciplines in terms of uh, deepening our prayer life, and as well as, uh, as I mentioned, heightening our conscience and in the sense of our attentiveness to our actions. Paragraph 18, and I cannot be silent about the story of Hezekiah the Horbite. He passed his life in complete negligence without paying the least attention to his soul. Then he became extremely ill, and for an hour he expired. And when he came to himself, he begged us all to leave him immediately. And he built up the door of his cell, and he stayed in it for 12 years without ever having uttered a word to anyone, and without eating anything but bread and water. And always remaining motionless, he was so wrapped in spirit at what he had seen in his ecstasy that he never changed this manner of life, but always as if out of his mind and silently shed hot tears. But when he was about to die, he, we broke open the door and went in. And after many questions, this alone was all we heard from him. Forgive me, no one who has acquired the remembrance of death will ever be able to sin. We were so amazed to see that one who had been before so negligent was so suddenly transfigured by this blessed change and transformation. We reverently buried him in the cemetery near the fort. And after some days, we looked for his holy relics, but did not find them. So by Hezekiah's true and praiseworthy repentance, the Lord showed us that he accepts those who desires to amend, desire to amend 
even after long negligence. I've always found this story to be very powerful that uh, after having this vision, it radically changes the view of his life and his uh, approach to God and the spirit of repentance within, within him. And we find saints both East and West who've had this kind of experience, uh, whether it's of purgatory or of hell itself, a vision uh, of what comes after death that awakens something within them uh, and enlivens the spirit of prayer and repentance within them. Uh, Teresa of Avila, Avila, I believe, had a similar uh, mystical experience along those lines, too. And for Hezekias, uh, it leads him into this then radical solitude. Uh, he uh, embraces the Aramidic life. He uh, becomes an anchorite. He walls himself up in this room only to pray and to, to fast constantly throughout the 12 remaining years of his life and leaves his fellow brothers only with the words that one who really uh, understands and remembers death will, will never sin. So there was something about this vision that opened his eyes to the reality of death itself, what that experience is for us as, as human beings. And I think sometimes in our day, we lose sight of the fact of death being an enemy as Paul describes it, uh, you know, certainly an enemy that Christ conquers, but nonetheless an enemy. And so often, I think uh, there is a kind of psychological uh, thing that we will do, uh, I think, to direct our attention away from it, to avoid uh, this remembrance that John is speaking of here, uh, to turn it into something that is good, or rather than seeing it for the experience that it is, that it is a consequence of sin, of living in a fallen world, of knowing corruption. And uh, while we are given this extraordinary hope of, of life in Christ and believe that he has conquered death, uh, still to see it and have a knowledge of it and what it does to the human person, uh, that uh, one can only then look at one's life in a different fashion. And so, you know, this remembrance of death is not just a kind of morbid spirit, uh, but rather it is something that I think shines a light upon human existence and the experience of being a human being, especially as we come to the end of our life. And we, we need to see it for what it is, not, not only in terms of our having to give an account for our life, but the very experience of death itself. Uh, if you remember, John, in the earlier part of this step, describes Christ's experience uh, of death, uh, that uh, he has no terror of it because there is no sin there and no unrepented sin, uh, but there is this fear of death that is comes to us on a natural level. That uh, that the loss of life, the coming, the end of the life, the dissolution of the person at that moment uh, is a frightful thing. And I think when we sanitize that for ourselves uh, or avoid thinking about it. Uh, then it has this effect upon our spiritual life. 
uh, in the sense that it weakens our, our resolve and the seriousness with which we, we look at our actions and our choices and uh, the path that we take during this life. And so, you know, having experienced this uh, near-death experience or having seemingly been dead for that length of period of time certainly opened his eyes to that reality. So much that from that moment on, his life was one of repentance, whereas before he led a dissolute life. Any comments or thoughts? Okay. Paragraph 19. Oh, Anthony. I believe I read part of St. Thomas More's meditation on death, he being quite Western, that the pain of the soul leaving the body is quite real and a necessary evil. That's right. And I think that's always alluding to, and maybe not so well, that the experience of that for us as human beings uh, is, is not a joyful one. It's not an easy experience to, to go through. And, uh, you know, we enter into it as men and women of faith uh, with a hope that comes to us through Christ, but not a hope that comes uh, from ourselves or from, you know, altering our understanding of the nature of death itself. Our hope comes from what Christ has done for us on the cross, what he gives us in the Eucharist, and from living a repentant life, from turning to, toward him. And, uh, and you know, in the lives of the saints, East and West, we see this um, understanding emerge. And uh, never this sense of making light of it. All right. Paragraph 19. Just as some declare that the abyss is infinite, for they call it a bottomless pit, so is the thought of death boundless, laying hold of chastity and act activity. The above-mentioned saint confirms the truth of what has been said. For such men unceasingly add fear to fear, do not stop until the very strength of their bones is spent. So it's this at one point is called a fearless, what, what emerges is described as a fearless fear, that it, you know, having our fear rightly placed, you know, having a clear sense of our, our destiny and what, what our experience will be, frees us from fear of things in this world or from illness or anxiety, that it clarifies things to us to such an extent that we are willing to give ourselves over fully to Christ, whatever the cost of that might be. And this is what he says in the very last sentence, uh, that they add this fear to fear and don't stop in the ascetic life until they are, are worn out, until they are spent. And how different this is, I think, from an age where we're very cautious, I think, about our health, our strength, you know, not fatiguing ourselves, you know, never pushing ourselves uh, in the, the spiritual life or the ascetic life. And, uh, and so we, we see how important this remembrance of death is in terms of motivating us. Let us rest assured that the remembrance of death, like all other blessings, is a gift of God. Since how is it that often when we are at the very tombs, we are left tearless and hard, 
And frequently when we have no such sight, we are full of compunction. And so, you know, there are times where we can walk through a cemetery and have that not have an impact upon us uh, because we can sort of distance ourselves from that reality, even though we are walking in the midst of the graves. Whereas the remembrance of death in such a concrete way then gives rise to these cleansing tears and compunction within us, where we are making it personal and not distancing ourselves from it. 21, he who has died to all things remembers death, but whoever is still tied to the world does not cease plotting against himself. Uh, you know, I typed that out earlier today and, and because I found it to be striking, this idea of plotting against ourselves, that when we lose sight of the, the sort of the ultimate or the greater realities of life, and especially that it comes to an end, uh, that we never cease plotting against ourselves in the sense that we uh, keep looking for ways to satisfy uh, our appetites, our desires, and uh, give ourselves over to our passions. And in, in this way, we are conspiring against ourselves and our own spiritual well-being. Do not wish to assure everyone in words of your love for them, but rather ask God to show them your love without words. Otherwise, time will not suffice you for both intimacies and compunction. So, you know, for a monk, I think the clarity of this is probably greater, you know, that being removed from one's family, there can become this, there can come this urge to return to them, uh, to be able to engage them and to be able to express that, that love in a more direct and concrete way. Uh, and, but if one is moving back and forth between the monastery, you sort of defeat the whole purpose of the, of the life and the commitment. Uh, but I, th I think in general uh, that, you know, the deeper message of this is that we can become fixated with pleasing others in one form or another more than pleasing God and more than attending to the state of our soul. And so it's not as though loving others or caring for them or expressing that love and care is a bad thing. But sometimes we can make it a God or others a God in, in the sense that they absorb our energy uh, and take away that fervor and zeal for God and the kingdom. That if we find our ultimate satisfaction in the other of this world, and we give them the place of the Lord, then we diminish the zeal that John is, is speaking of, of here. So this, this is a hard one, certainly, but I think if it's understood uh, on that level, we, we can grasp it well enough. Do not deceive yourself, foolish worker, as if one time can make up for another. For the day is not sufficient to repay in full its own debt to the Lord. So, you know, never putting off to tomorrow our response to, to God 
or what has been entrusted to us or the spirit that is given to us in any given moment, not to shelve that gift and think, I will do it tomorrow. You know, tomorrow is uh, uh, often a troublesome thought and word for one seeking to live the spiritual life uh, that I'll put off you know, committing myself to a, a life of greater discipline and prayer, you know, once I get everything that needs to be done and out of the way, once Thanksgiving is over, then I'll step into my spiritual discipline fully. And we, we do this repeatedly throughout our life. You know, things will come up and we will magnify them in importance and we'll let that day go by without any attentiveness to God and to the life of prayer, our spiritual discipline. And what John is saying here is that it, it, there's no way, even within a day that is fully dedicated to God, that we can repay the, the extent of the love that he's given to us. So even if there was no moment in the course of the day that we're, where we neglected God, our love for him and our service of him and others, it still would not uh, as it were, repay the debt of what he has given us. It would not equal what he has given to us. So don't think by putting off your response to God to tomorrow is uh, when, when we can't even fulfill it on a given day, you know, don't delude yourself into thinking that you, know, you can put off to tomorrow uh, immersing yourself in the spiritual life. Anthony. You said we magnify the importance of things out of proportion to their value. This is fearing things temporal, but not having fear of the Lord, isn't it? That's right. You know, we often fear the loss of those things, the loss of those relationships. Uh, you know, if we were fully given over to Christ or responding in some way and uh or the loss of a job or you know not being able to perform up to other people's expectations of us or our expectations of ourselves and so gradually we can put god at best i think on equal footing with the things in in this world he'll be part of a checklist of things that we are attentive to, which is already problematic. It's placing God on equal footing with everything else in our life. But eventually, I think what that devolves into is pushing God out to the margins where everything becomes magnified in its importance. And then the importance of prayer and you know the, the Holy Eucharist for us, serving others is... Uh, you know, pushed so far out to the margins that it's often, you know, goes unnoticed altogether. It is a frightful thing. You know, we can become so absorbed in things that we can lose sight of God altogether. You know, whether it's a crisis in our life or the demands of our work or uh, friendships with others, you know, that we uh, can lose sight of God rather than having God permeate those realities for us. And somehow I think we, we feel that if, if we give ourselves over fully to God, that that's going to diminish those relationships rather than help us love 
others with a greater freedom, more perfectly, and in the way that God desires us to love them. And the same thing with the work that we've been given. Sue and Mark. Yes, Father. Um, thank you, Anthony, for your question. Um, my wondering is, in here, in this book, and in some of the other readings of fathers, there's such an emphasis on fear, which almost seems kind of crippling to me, like it could really work in the opposite way. Um, so my, my question is, does Christ, does our Lord, does he really want us to have that much fear, especially in the New Testament, when he said to fear not? And so I'm just, there just seems to be something that seems sometimes out of balance to me. But it's likely that I'm missing something. So I thought perhaps you could answer that question. Thank you. God bless. Okay. Uh, I think the, the fear that is being talked of is acknowledging that we are in a relationship with he who created us, with God himself. And that what he tells us not to fear are the things of this world. Consider the lilies of the field. You know, that, you know, that they don't, they aren't concerned for anything or the birds of the air. Uh, that what he wants us to have is no anxiety about anything this, within this world. Uh, that what we need to focus on is on him alone, who loves us and provides for all of our need. And it's this fear of the loss of that reality, of choosing something over and above it that is the only legitimate fear that leads us then to freedom from a worldly kind of anxiety. Eventually, the fear itself, as we hear so often within the fathers, including John Climacus, gives way to love, that the, the fear itself dissipates, and only what remains alone is the love of God and the desire for him, that that's the ultimate goal, that it, we would be drawn along by that desire for him and what he alone provides. And, uh, but, you know, I think we often have a hard time getting there because of our sin and uh, the, the darkness that we experience because of it and the weakness of our will, that we will lose sight of God or we will place things above him and we will choose the things of this world. And so this remembrance of death, you know, of our mortality, but also the remembrance uh, of judgment, you know, that we are given this life as a gift and how we embrace that gift and respond to that gift as well as the gift of his love and the love that flows and the grace that flows to us from the cross is not something that we can hold cheap or be indifferent towards. And so to be awakened to that reality is to experience within ourselves the magnitude of what God has done to us, as well as the, the magnitude of sin itself and the, the darkness of it and the destructiveness of it. And we see, you know, images of this in the Old Testament, you know, when the, the people are stung by serpents and, you know, Moses is told to, you know, pin a serpent to a rod and make them gaze upon it, that they, and there they will be healed, that it's by, you know, gazing upon, as it were, their sin and the consequence of that, their sin. They were dying from the sting of these serpents in a similar way and far greater way 
you know, when stung by our sin, uh, we are, uh, you know, we are wounded unto death and the, the wound that we bear from our sin. And it's only by the mercy of God and the healing that is provided through his grace that we are raised up to life. And uh, our inability to see not only the darkness of sin and the, the greatness of that love and mercy, but also the spiritual battle that we are engaged in with principalities and powers that we have demons set against us to pull us away from that life should fill the heart with a kind of healthy fear that we would see our life in the full light of truth. And in order to be able to embrace it as it is and enter into it. And again, ultimately, you know, I think the, the more one becomes free of the passions, the freer then one becomes to love God without any impediment. And once that emerges, then the fear dissipates. One runs in search of him. And, you know, I think we, again, we, we push this notion out and we tell ourselves, you know, it's contrary to the nature of God. You know, it would be contrary to the nature of God not to illuminate the nature of our sin and its ultimate consequence uh, and the death that it brings. That love would seek to draw us out of that darkness into the full light of truth would seek to draw us into a spirit of repentance in order that we might be healed. And uh, again, you know, I think there is a kind of spiritual and psychological resistance to looking at that fully. And it's for this reason that we, you know, we've put death, you know, we put the elderly, those who are sick, and we put, we've sanitized death to such an extent and hidden it, you know, I find more and more people not wanting to have any kind of funeral service at all, you know, and it's often under, you know, the guise of like not wanting to burden one's family or not wanting to have to pay for that. And, but what it in, I think what is at the heart of it is that it prevents one from dealing with the reality of preparing for death and also preventing, I think one's family from facing that reality too, and seeing for what it is and praying for the souls of their, their loved ones and for God's mercy. Now we do all these things uh, to avoid seeing that, that truth in its fullness. Sheila writes, as much as I know in my heart, God fulfills and heals and is all sometimes, God feels empty and disconnected and lacking, and the things here feel fulfilling or at least tangible, and in that, familiar and comforting. So therein lies temporal conflict of interest. Yeah, and I think that's part uh, of our sinfulness, that, you know, we've been created for God and to experience his love and in, in how we have been created as human beings. And so, 
we are in this constant state of receptivity. And so outside of sin, everything that we would encounter from in the world would have been a means and a path to communion with God, would have revealed God to us. And it's our sin that brings about that disconnect. Our desires, our appetites become disordered, redirected towards the self or the things of this world. And, uh, and that communion with God breaks down. You know, we, we see it in the story of Adam and Eve, you know, that you know, they're unable to control those appetites and they're unable to experience that union and communion with God uh, in and through uh, who they are as human beings. They hide themselves, seek to hide themselves from God. And, uh, you know, I think part of what our sin does is it darkens this uh, view of our understanding of what it is to be a human being and the nature of the fall, the reality of the fall and its impact upon us. I had one professor in graduate school, a scripture scholar, uh, Old Testament, that uh, she didn't want people to use the word the fall in her class and wouldn't let them use it. That intellectually she was opposed to this, the whole notion and, you know, uh, what the church has taught, you know, from the, the beginning, you know, in terms of the, the beginnings of sin and the breakdown of that communion. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think on a fundamental level, we move away from that as well, you know, in the sense of having a clarity about what, what the fall is, what, what it has done to our relationship with God, what it means to experience corruption uh, of the flesh, weakness of the flesh, uh, uh, the disorder in our appetites. We are created for communion and that communion breaks down through sin. It's restored by grace and by reordering those appetites and desires toward God. But th that comes by entering into a relationship and taking hold of, in a spirit of gratitude, what God has given us. And so often, you know, I think in sometimes our negligence or our unwilling to, unwillingness to invest ourselves or our desire to cling to our sin, we place the weight and the burden upon God. You know, as Adam shifts the blame onto Eve, you know, she made me do it. She told me to eat of the, the fruit, you know, that we, we will project onto God, you know, our, you know, negligence, our lack of love and commitment. Any follow-up? I don't know if that addressed your... I see what you're saying here. You know, I think the things of this world can seem more concrete and comforting for us. But I think part of that is the, the breakdown of that intimacy with God. That as we enter into that relationship and we begin to taste the sweetness of the life of virtue and the sweetness of prayer and even of all the disciplines that they speak here, of even the remembrance of death, 
or of compunction, of sorrow, of mourning over one's sin, that we that experience of God becomes ever so real and concrete and tangible for us. Any follow-up or anything anyone want to add to Sheila's observations or comments? Yeah, we do grasp at the concrete, as you say here. And, you know, I think we want that sort of immediate consolation and, you know, to struggle for it and to consciously turn toward God uh, when, you know, even on a most basic level, we've often talked about food here, you know, that we will see consolation in something as simple as that uh, over and above, you know, seeking it from God. And how rooted that is in our human nature, but also in our, our fallen human nature. And the more that we are touched by grace, then I think we even experience in that hunger, the, the presence of God. You know, what it rouses within us is a greater desire for him. But it does take faith, you know, to, to fast, you know, and allow oneself to experience that and to deepen one's prayer in order to be able to taste it. And this is what John was saying, you know, it's, you know, there are those who, you know, the epicures are going to find what I say to be cruel and harsh, whereas the one who has tasted the sweetness of, you know, living this kind of discipline and embracing the fasting is going to smile at the notion because they know the sweetness that it brings. Okay. Let's see, number 24, no, it's, uh, yeah, number 24, it is impossible, someone says, impossible to spend the present day devoutly unless we regard it as the last of our whole life. And it is truly astonishing how even the Greeks have said something of the sort since they divine philosophy as meditation on death. And so, Impossible to spend a day devoutly unless we regard it as the last of our whole whole life. That in, you know, Philip Neri, you know, one of the most joyful of all the saints, you know, says the same, you know, that we aren't guaranteed another day. And so to live in the moment, to embrace the moment that God has given to us and to live it in accord with what he's revealed to us. And it's the acknowledgement of that truth that, you know, for any one of us, this could be, you know, our last day. And so we would want to live it devoutly. And then finally, this is the sixth step. He who has mounted it will never sin again. Remember thy last and thou shalt never sin unto eternity. I think that's a pretty, you know, bold statement i think just to sort of pick up this text and read it to say that this remembrance of death and to do so hourly is to find a path to freedom from sin you know it's in terms of it being a virtue and a spiritual practice 
you know, it not only makes it essential, but it elevates it in, in terms of its value for us. So that, that which we often dread and fear and avoid thinking about actually can be our path to freedom and joy. And this, you know, Jesus in the gospel says, unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That he's, you know, he tells us that, you know, and it's so jarring. You know, people think, you know, what in the world is this? Is it hyperbole? What is he saying? And, you know, that hate, you know, that's the four four letter word for us. But, you know, hate becomes the one path to true love and true freedom. That we choose Christ and the life that he's offered us over our own and our own desires. And this promises us everything. So any comments or questions about the whole step? Like a bucket of cold water. There's no, no doubt about it. Eric. Um, so am I, to, I guess the impression that I'm getting, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the focus on death is, is more like seize the day. Don't wait until, um, don't wait to repent. No, don't wait to um, turn towards God and begin uh, a devout life. Um, is that the, 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 the primary and 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 be a, be afraid of judgment, uh, the last judgment. Is that kind of the primary focus? Well, you know what I th I think it's even more personal than that. I think this remembrance of death is to seize life, but not in an abstract way. It's for us, life is a person, and so you know to. Uh, re remember death leads us to turn and take hold of he who is life and to embrace him. And so it's not, an, you know, because I think it would fall short in the sense of moving us or compelling us if it's only to motivate us to do things or to seize the day. And then in the sense of our work, it has to be something far more personal for us, you know, remember death in order that you might turn to he who is life. He is the path to life, the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, don't allow yourself, you know, to let a day pass without reminding yourself who he is and, and to turn to him and embrace him. And I think that's where fear gives way very quickly, you know, the, uh, in terms of the remembrance of death to the experience of he who is life. You know, it's not God standing over us, you know, saying, you know, hellfire is going to, you know, pour on you. It's, it's, it's a desire, a longing, 
for us to take hold of what will draw us into the fullness of life and for which he was willing to embrace death itself. So life, he who is life, allows himself to be swallowed up by death in order that we who were still enemies with God might experience the fullness of life, not just in this world, but for eternity and in union and communion with the most holy trinity. And I think when we see it in this way, it sort of puts things in perspective. It sort of makes our, you know, the fears that we have about that on an intellectual level, an emotional level, sort of fade into the background. It's like, okay, yes, of course. You know, it's to take seriously what sin brings, but it's to see with a greater clarity what Christ offers and brings. And so just as we will hear in the next step, the joy-making mourning, that the mourning of compunction, mourning over one's sin, brings one to the joy of being reunited through Christ through repentance. So the remembrance of death awakens us up, awakens us and opens our eyes to he who is life. Okay. And, you know, I, I just, we don't often think that way. And we don't even have a word for the next step that in English that we are looking at, you know, compunctions, close penth penthos or this or joyful sorrow. You know, this it's this is that's what the word means when the, the fathers use it. And so it's you know a joy that arises out of a mourning over one's sin. You know, that because it that mourning turns uh, leads us to turn toward Christ and know the comfort and consolation that He alone can offer us. Okay. So when we move on, oh, Anthony, to combine a martial arts analogy with the crucifixion, this fear is like throwing the enemy off balance. Christ was the bait swallowed by death willingly so that he could catch death and defeat it. We follow his example and take hold of this enemy so that we can, in his grace and example, direct death to our benefit. Yes, I think that's, that's really on, on the mark, you know, that we are able to look clearly with eyes wide open at sin and its consequence. And in doing so, it also opens our eyes to where true hope and life is to be found. And so it would be the evil one who would be actually tempting us to ignore it, to make light of it, who clouds our vision so that we only focus on the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, the most obeyed words in all the scriptures, <laughs> even though we're told not to to do that. I think, you know, it's what we, you know, that becomes our motto. Okay. Step number seven on joy making morning. What a title. <laughs> uh, all right. 
Mourning, according to God, is sadness of soul and the disposition of a sorrowing heart, which ever madly seeks that for which it thirsts. And when it fails in its quest, it painfully pursues it and follows in its wake grievously lamenting. So already here in his definition, what you experience is a person who's on fire with a desire for God and the, they're madly seeking the one for whom their soul thirsts. And in the scriptures we have, and, you know, the Song of Songs certainly captures the same sentiment. And, you know, so driven, grievously lamenting, but out of this longing for what God alone can satisfy within the human heart. And so this is what this joy-making sorrow is about. Or thus he writes, mourning is a golden spur in a soul, which is stripped of all attachment and of all ties, fixed by holy sorrow to watch over the heart. So, you know, again, love is not blind. You know, the, the deeper our love for Christ becomes, the clearer the vision becomes, the clearer our vision becomes. Uh, both in, in seeing his love for us, but also the impediments to our experiencing the fullness of that love. And so the description of a golden spur, you know, it's this precious thing, but it's like a spur stuck in the side of a horse to make it run more swiftly. And so this mourning over our sin makes us run to the Lord with a swiftness of one who is driven, driven by love. And, uh, you know, I've often heard it described as, you know, when Peter and John, you know, run to the tomb, you know, the, the beloved disciple, the one whom Christ loved and that, there was no impediment there. He ran with the swiftness to the tomb, even though there didn't seem to be any reason for doing so. You know, driven by both driven by sorrow, but Peter weighted down, but you know, running with a heavy tread under the burden of his own sin of having betrayed the Lord. And John runs with the swiftness to the tomb. And similar, you know, our love for the Lord leads us to, you know, run with his swiftness, but also in, into this mourning and in, into this tomb that, you know, acknowledges the death that our sin brings. But in our running towards it, we come to experience ever more swiftly the presence of he who is life, who's conquered the grave. The tomb is empty. And so it brings us to that clarity with greater swiftness. Compunction is a perennial trial of the conscience, which brings about the cooling of the fire of the heart through mental confession. And confession is a forgetfulness of nature since someone because of this forgot to eat his bread. So a perennial trial of the conscience 
you know, that our conscience is what spurs us on then to, to keep running towards the Lord and even leads us then to forget the things of the world, even something as fundamental as eating. And so we, we often hear these stories of the saints who are so wrapped in prayer that time passes very quickly and they, they forget to eat, you know, and that they've prayed, you know, over the course of an entire day, you know, on, on you know, not recognizing, as it were, the pass, passage of time because they're so focused upon him. So, you know, we read all this again, not in an, as an abstraction, but in the most personal kind of way. Christ always has to be the focus and the lens through which we view and understand these things. So our mourning over sin is something then that makes us run more swiftly toward him. And it's part of our desire for, for what he and he alone can offer us. So it's not just sadness, it's not depression, it's not despondency, despair. It's a mourning that has, you know, as part of it, a longing, a desire to re reach out for the, the one that is desired. It's sort of like Mary Magdalene at the tomb wanting to take hold of him and not let him go. You know, and he, he wants to be something far more for her at that moment and, and for us all not just to go back to what was. And you remember his words to her, you know, because I have to go to my father and your father, my God and your God, that this pathway to the fullness of love, unlimited love, that no longer knows the, 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 the loss of death is what is offered. So don't cling uh, to what one had before, what you had before, but allow yourself to embrace now what comes through the resurrection, the, the fullness of life. So go tell the others of what you've witnessed. Repentance is the cheerful deprival of every bodily comfort <laughs> on the eve of Thanksgiving, <laughs> where we eat to the point that we pass out. Uh, not to laugh, I shouldn't laugh about that. I mean, it's un unfortunately true, but uh, the joyful deprival of every, every, every bodily comfort. Now, how, how can one say that? You, you have to ask yourself, you have to slow down and say, how is John saying that? That it's the joyful deprival, the, this, the, uh, this, that repentance, is this cheerful deprival, unless it has a, a goal, an aim, unless Christ is the focus of it, that we are willing to deprive ourselves of all these different things, not because we hate them or because uh, they're, they're evil in essence, but because they weigh us down from running with the swiftness that we would desire towards he alone who offers us the perfection of love. 
the you know the, the one alone who can fill that void within the human heart that nothing in this world can fill. This is where you begin to see that asceticism, you know, fasting, vigils, or anything like it outside of prayer makes no sense. You know, to deprive oneself outside of seeing one's the fulfillment of that hunger, you know, in, in Christ. You know, and, you know, Paul alludes to this when he says, you know, if, if there is no resurrection, then we are the most pitiable of creatures. You know, if we do not believe in this fullness of life that it is promised to us, and yet we endure the hatred of the world, we suffer all these tortures, you know, and even lose our life, then we are the most pitiable of creatures within this world. But we do that because of our, our faith and the promise of that everlasting life and love. And so that's how you can say cheerful deprival. You know, I'm depriving myself because this leads to a deeper experience of that love and a deeper freedom that allows me to turn to him without being held down by my, my passions or disordered desires. A characteristic of those who are still progressing in blessed mourning is temperance and silence of the lips and of those who have made progress, freedom from anger and patient endurance of injuries and of the perfect humility, thirst for dishonors, voluntary craving for involuntary afflictions non-condemnation of sinners, compassion even beyond one's strength. The first are acceptable, the second laudable, but blessed are those who hunger for hardship and thirst for dishonor, for they shall be filled with the food whereof there can be no satiety. So, you know, the person who has been made perfect through this is you know, what is promised is a love that uh, can never be, uh, never reaches an end. You know, that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, beyond our understanding of fullness, ever increasing and deepening. And so, you know, this is what, again, the promise of this is what leads to the willingness to embrace all of these things laid out here. And so looked at and read simply from the perspective of our own intellect or reason and its limitations or from a worldly perspective, it's going to seem like lunacy. Because uh, often, you know, love does seem like lunacy. You know, those who fall in love seem out of their mind you know, out of their mind and everything else fades into the background. And, uh, and so, you know, if one is to enter into this relationship with he who is life and love itself, then what, what is the impact upon that, upon the person? It's going to flip everything upside down, you know, in terms of the way that we view life and the world. 
that there's nothing going, nothing that's going to satisfy that uh, longing that we have within us. If God has created us for himself, then he's, he must have created us in a way that, you know, that only can be satisfied by the experience of this infinite love, that we experience this void within us that nothing in this world can fulfill, that only God can fulfill. And, you know, the Paschal mystery has made that a possibility, you know, to be, uh, to experience the fullness of the life of the Holy Trinity. Deification is what is promised. And so, you know, I think those who come to see this are going to run with a kind of swiftness. The spiritual life is not about endurance. It's not, you know, these great ascetic feats to impress readers, you know. You know, it's, it has to be about love or it's, it's nothing. This desire and, and love for God that matches his desire and love for us. Any comments or questions? So before you have that second plate of turkey tomorrow, <laughs> think back on John. No, enjoy, enjoy the holiday, everybody. And I hope it's a blessed one for you with family and friends. And uh, we'll stop there tonight. It's 8.30. A lot to ponder. You know, we're, we sort of bridge the gap between these two, uh, two steps. And so a lot to think about until next week. All right. So why don't we close there with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.